All right. This week on Between Two Pines, uh, we are joined by a guest host, Cody Helcox. Cody, you could say hi. Hey, guys. How's it going? Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so this week, Zach and I and, uh, and Cody along with us, we're going to talk about some outdoors news articles. We're going to talk about some of the hunting and uh, outdoor stuff we did this week. And then Cody is going to give us some insight into uh, aquatic invasives uh, in some of our residential ponds. And then we'll close out, as we always do, with some hot gear and uh, cold beer. So, Zach, what did you do this weekend? Anything or this week? Anything fun fun and exciting? Uh, Last weekend, I went out bow hunting again, and I ended up filling my buck tag. Um, Pretty nice deer. His 115, 120-inch class, uh, public land. He was... I got to the spot around four, around four o'clock and uh, climbed up a tree. I had to actually cut a bunch of brush up in the tree, so it was pretty noisy. I was going to be surprised if I saw anything that day after how much noise I made. But uh, yeah, I got up there and about an hour and a half, 5.15, 5.30 rolled around and I just started hearing something and it was a, it was a snort wheeze. And after hearing it, I knew it couldn't be anything but a buck. So then I gave a doe. I couldn't see it yet. And I gave a doe grunt. And he just kind of came around the corner right into the opening. And 32 yards, I stuck him, double lung, and he went maybe 100 yards. And down he went. So nice 10-pointer and just filling the freezer up more. I got probably 85, 90 pounds of venison this year so far. Jesus. And so how many, uh, you said it was, uh, how many pounds did it weigh undressed? Undressed. Uh, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't that big. I got total process weight was like 32 pounds, but, um, yeah. you know, that's, that's getting up there for deer around here. We got some little deer down in Southern Missouri. Yeah, for sure. And you, you going to get out this week at all? Yeah, we're supposed to get a lot of rain on Saturday. Um, but I mean that that deer showed a lot of rut activity, so sometimes those rains are good to hunt early and late in the day. And uh, if not, then I might just hold off for Friday afternoon and then Sunday morning. But I got a doe tag left, and I can always get some more doe tags too. So I got kid. I just can't help myself. I got to go out. <laughs> <laughs> nice. How about, how about you, Cody? Did you uh, did you get out? Do anything? Uh, get any fishing, hunting, any outdoor stuff in? Yeah. So what's the good part about my job is uh, you know I, I check about twenty bodies of water a day. Um, all of our customers, we make our rounds and uh, test the water quality and everything. And you know, if I get done with my job pretty early. And the day I'll go go to some of my uh, special ponds where my honey holes are at, and uh, you know what? I wasn't a believer before, but uh, early fall season top water bass fishing is the real deal. Oh, it's real oh McCoy. Yeah. yeah. So you know, and I'm 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 out here in the Chicagoland area, so I know you boys are you've got all the freaking fish that you could ever want up north. But uh, you know, I'm in these ponds and. You got a weed bed that grows about five, 10 feet from the shoreline. And I've got this uh, scum frog from like 1985 that my old man <laughs> gave me. They don't even make them anymore. Uh, the, the, it's a, off of it. 
Yeah. It's an actual frog. That's just yeah, real, right. it's just super dry. Right, right, That's my, it. right. My hillbilly dad's got a bunch of frogs sitting in the garage and a bunch of alcohol that we just put on there. No. But yeah, the scum frog is so old, you know, still in its packaging. And I mean, I threw that thing out there about 30 times, just bringing it over the top of the top of the weeds there. And it's like, okay, well, the water's cold, but these bass are still biting. So, you know, nothing too impressive, but you can't beat topwater bass fishing, especially in the Chicagoland area. Yeah, no kidding. And uh, what are what are the water temps looking like down there right now? Uh, well, it's a so it's a little bit warmer. The water's going to be a little bit warmer than the air temperature is, especially during the middle of the day. Um, water takes longer to heat up and cool down than the air does, but we're getting around. It's getting to be up to fifty five degrees air temperature on a good day. So your water's going to be a little bit higher than that, you know. So if it's about forty some degrees in the morning, water's going to be a little bit warmer than that, and it's going to kind of follow that trend all day long. Nice. And are and are these uh, are these bass? You think uh, you think they're still are they pretty are they thick mamas or are they uh, are they thinning out before winter? Uh, you know what? I think all the strikes that I'm getting, they're all hunger strikes. You know, there's not a lot of chunk to them. Um, I'm seeing a lot of thick male uh bass and not a lot of fat mamas you know what i mean (laughs) (laughs) nothing wrong with that no not at all you know do you guys know do they put their feed bag on in the fall like other predator predatory fish do uh yeah they do you know and it's it's a different fishing game than it is in the summer um you know like i said uh, I'm catching them on top water in a weed bed that's only sticking, you know, 10 feet out from the shoreline. But if you're not fishing this top water along these weed beds, uh, I can't throw a, a crankbait or anything along, along the shoreline without, you know, catching diddly squat. You know, you got to throw it in the deep water. So there's some that are chilling in those drop off areas. But, you know, it seems like there's still some uh, in the shallows, probably when the sun comes out during the midday or two three o'clock but but yes yeah, it's, it's super variable out here and i mean you know we're talking chicago land mostly residential fishing so the variables are just endless yeah i hear that yeah. i hear that yeah. all right well um yeah yeah um well uh yeah this week i've gotten into the stand one i got out i uh bow hunted what did I do? Yeah, I, well, well, I guess since the last time we talked, oh no, we talked last time I went duck hunting. I haven't gotten out duck hunting this week, but um, I did get into the stand one time actually yesterday. Um, typical, uh, did not see anything the whole time I was in the stand, um, which which I will touch on my when we talk about hot gear. I will talk about a funny story, um, but uh, yeah, I didn't see anything. And then, you know, I pack up. It, it was real overcast and it's getting dark out so freaking early. It's making me depressed. Um, but uh, so I got out of the stand before before hunting hours were even over because I couldn't see anything. Um, so I get out, go back to the truck, drive down the road, literally at the end of the driveway of the property that I was hunting on, like 10 deer just chilling like right along the road, almost hit, almost hit three more. Like there's like 40 in the field, like a quarter mile down the road. So yeah, I did not see anything until I, I was really, you know, at that point when you're in that depression, 
I'm really just hoping that one runs out and I can pancake it <laughs> with my truck. Yeah. <laughs> Put food on the table, man. Yeah, exactly. And you, you already know I'm going to do a grip and grin with it and put my bow in front of it and take the picture. Put a, put your truck drag it, drag it into the ditch. Drag it into the ditch. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. But, yeah, no, not much for that. But, uh, you know, uh, just trying to, I've been, uh, I did a reorganization of my tackle box, just end of the season, organize everything. Cause I don't know how much I'm going to be getting out. And I wanted to get out for fall muskies, but I, it's not looking like I'm going to have the time to do it with all the hunting that's going on. Now what I've, uh, what I've been doing the last few years and like, you know, I mean, cause I'm a huge fisherman. I know you guys do a lot of hunting, but you know, when the season starts to wind down for fishing, got myself a makeshift fly tying kit and I'll spend some nights, you know, sipping on whiskey, just tying all sorts of stupid flies for the spring season. And that kind of cures the, uh, the old uh, depression of not being able to go out and, and be outside, do what you want. Do what you want. No, no, I'm, I'm totally with you. And I just, last year is when I just got into fly tying, but what I've been tying a lot of, which is another reason why I want deer and squirrels and all these other animals, I've been tying bucktails. Yep, I've been making yep. bucktails in which the the deer tails and the deer fur from them. That's like mm-hmm. all that's the prime stuff that you could get for that. So, you know, there's uh, you try and use every part of the animal when you when you harvest it, and right. I, I mean, I'll use everything for for anything. But yeah, well, so I mean, I know like, I know you boys you boys are up north, and me me and my old man will we'll be uh, trapping chipmunks and and squirrels and stuff, you know, that are nuisances around the property and you know, cut the tails off of those things and they make perfect fly time. Oh yeah. No, I got, <laughs> you know, yeah. but between you and I, I've got uh, a couple <laughs> of friends of mine had, uh, had a, about a year's worth of squirrel uh, tails. I got a literal uh, uh, grocery bag full of squirrel yep. tails that yep. I, I choose not to open because <laughs> it is putrid smelling, but it's like I just reach in, like cover my face, reach in, grab one and pull it out and like seal the bag back up. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so for sure. Well, it sounds like, uh, sounds like everyone got out in the woods a bit, uh, got into a wood, uh, got out in the woods a bit this weekend, but, or this week. Um, but, uh, Cody, your, your first time, uh, for our, our first real guest on the show. So kind of what we do the, the first section here is, uh, we talk about some of the news here and uh, I don't know if you got a chance right. to read some of these articles, but, um, the first one that I found, I thought was pretty funny and it's not hunting related, but, uh, a 190 pound, uh, bull mastiff, uh, some, somebody, uh, decided to bring him up a mountain, uh, on a hike, which I think is a bold strategy in and of itself. <laughs> I've seen this, I've seen that video. That's hilarious. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so they they brought him up and uh, he decided to not come back down. Uh, And so they had to call actual actual rescuers to bring him up, which I think is a if I want my tax dollars going towards anything, if I'm a Colorado citizen, I want it to be rescuing good boys. You're damn right. (laughs) You know, much more so than a human. Uh, that can't make it down, you know, the human, you made your bed, you got to lie in it, leave him up there for a couple of days, make him learn. The dog had no choice in this matter. All right. <laughs> but I thought the funniest part was just the pure look of how, how elated the dog was getting carried on a stretcher <laughs> down the yeah. mountain. I, I mean, a... I've seen the video of it and, uh, you know, they got, it's at nighttime when they're taking the video and, uh, 
you see him. He's sitting there, kind of looking around, like, "Look at all you a holes! Like, <laughs> look at you, look at you guys carrying me down this mountain." But, yeah, you know, like like you said, it's like tax dollars at work. I'm okay with it. <laughs> yeah, if they're going anywhere, that's where I wanted to go to. But yeah, and it made it even better. I thought the the dog's name was perfect. His name is Floyd. And he's a good boy. So, so you good know, boy of the week. Huh? Good, good boy of the week, Floyd, for sure. That I, you know, Zach. I think Floyd might be our outdoorsman of the week this week. He is. Yeah, he's a he's an absolute unit, and uh, he's, he's an an the best boy. He's the best boy. Well, yes. So, uh, Zach, did you want to bring? Speaking of, yeah, go yeah. Ahead. Speaking of people getting stuck at top of mountains. Um, <laughs> Backcountry Hunters Anglers just brought out this article uh, in the beginning of October, and it basically can it can be as contentious as you want it to be, but basically it's just saying that you owe it to yourself and the animals you're harvesting to be in shape. Uh, basically, if you go up and make a big hike up these mountains and you're all out of breath and you're tired and stuff like that, then you're not doing the harvesting justice by getting this unethical shot on an animal. Yeah, no. And I thought the, the, some of the points that brought, that were brought up in this, I I, were ones that I would have never thought of, but were very interesting. I think this pertains a lot more so towards backcountry hunts. So not as much towards your tree stand hunts, but I mean, it makes sense too. Um, Or us lazy duck hunters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Get by a dog. Um, so, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, it was talking about you shoot an animal and then you can't get to it. And then that meat becomes tainted because you don't have the wherewithal to, to prepare for the hunt and get physically fit. And now the elk that you want to drag out that should have taken you one day if you prepared properly now takes you two days or two trips. Not only are you putting yourself at risk, but you're not. I think that's a good way to put it. You're not doing giving the hunt or the animal justice. Uh, by not preparing you're just going out there and shooting it and going okay and you're you know 100 pounds overweight and having an asthma attack and can't carry yourself out of there let alone you know 250 pounds of meat out of there so I I, I thought it was very uh, uh, as hot as hot a take as it could get but it, it didn't make sense yeah it's just one of those unspoken things that you know uh, some people tend to overlook or it's just one of those that you don't talk about. So it's good that somebody's finally uh, kind of getting it out there. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, um, is there any, and I, I mean, I was thinking backcountry, but is there any other ones that you could think of where you'd want to be physically fit for any other type of hunting? Cause I mean, for the most part, mo- like I'm thinking of bird species, I mean, duck hunting. Yes. And no, I mean, it, it, I, I think there's, you don't need to be as physically fit for that for a lot of bird hunting. But I think for like deer hunting, and you had spoken in one of our previous episodes about you almost dying, trying to drag your deer out in 120 degree heat, you know? Yeah. It's uh, definitely around here in Southern Missouri and in the Ozarks. If you're, if you're hunting public lands, you're going up and down hills all day long, trying to get away from people. So, I mean, ridges, you gotta, you gotta carry a deer on top of your climbing stand and your bow and your gear. I mean, it's just, there's, there's a lot of different uh, aspects of being fit, but you just got to prepare for it as best you can. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think I, that uh, I've got a, oh, 
I've got a question for Zach. Hey, Zach. So you're talking about you know your, um, you know your hard hardships getting back after you know you've harvested your deer and stuff. Well, I've seen and heard a lot of like backcountry hunts, especially out in Montana and stuff when they're hunting elk and big game. Do you ever uh, pack uh, your deer out? Do you ever find? Do, do you ever need to like you know? Uh, make a few trips here where you're, where you're cutting off a few legs or you're getting some, some part of the meat and leaving it there and then coming back, especially in conditions such like 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, personally, I haven't had to do that yet. Mm-hmm. Um, that day I did bring my ice fishing sled down with me. Oh, okay. So I loaded the deer in that and drug it that back to my truck, but I did leave. It was like a mile hike, so I left my stand and my bow at mm-hmm. where I shot, and then I just handled the deer. I got it up to the truck, got ice on it, then I went back down for the rest of my stuff. Okay. Um, but next time, so I haven't processed a whole lot of deer before this year, so I've, I've processed three that I've shot this year so far. So now I kind of know my ways, ins and outs of just quartering it. So I think mm-hmm. next big hike I do, it's just going to get quartered up, take the back straps and as much scraps as I can into game bags, and then just leave the bones back. Yep. Well, cool. Yeah. And then, uh, I, I mean, so long as we're talking about some of these hunts, Zach, you're a Missouri native now. Uh, did you want to touch on this uh, Missouri elk hunt article from o- Outdoor News? Uh, yeah. It's nothing... Nothing too crazy, but back in, let me see the dates. Um, Let's see, in in 2011, that's the date, uh, Missouri Department of Conservation released uh, a couple elk, and now there's little talks of in next year, 2020, they're going to try and offer... Uh, you know, a couple, five, ten hunting licenses for these elk. Um, it says there's about 175 to the herd right now. I actually live pretty close to the reintroduction site, and I can go down and watch them. Um, they have a little, like, auto tour for them and stuff, so it's kind of neat. But, yeah, I mean, we also have some from Arkansas that come up this way, and, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot seen outside of the reintroduction site. And those are all coming up from Arkansas, so it's it's pretty cool to kind of be in some elk country. So and it looks like it too. So how long do you think till somebody poaches one? <laughs> Man, I was, I was trying terrible. to look and see. I was trying to look and see if that had happened, and I'm. I would be surprised if it hasn't. I just think I more so look, overlooked it, but, um, you know, if they do a hunting season, obviously people like to. Uh, get a little naughty well it took it so. took wisconsinites a whopping like four days yeah they just keep shooting these things left and right i don't know what <laughs> everyone's deal is um but yeah no that'll be that'll be awesome i mean it, it is interesting to think because from what i understand and i could just be a complete blabbering idiot and i feel like i read this somewhere but uh, from what I understand is actually uh, elk are more of a, a southern animal, and they've, we've kind of pushed them out of their natural range. Yeah, pretty much everywhere. Even uh, 
I think it's debated if they were actually in Florida or like flirting with the uh, northern Florida, but the ones that held on when they did all the big, uh, you know, large mammal wipeouts were just kind of hidden away in the mountains out west. So that's kind of where they just where you restart the population. Yeah, no, no, yeah, I think I think it's cool. I mean, a lot more states, Wisconsin obviously did a similar thing, and I think more states are going to start doing this because. One, I don't I think they occupy a niche that uh, that other, you know, I don't think that they're really uh, inherently competing with whitetails. And even even if they are, I think whitetails are overpopulated enough where it really is inconsequential. But uh, I think it brings in a whole new aspect to uh, to the North American, uh, you know, uh, model of uh, of game management. And I think it brings in a whole new aspect for for big game hunters across the U S now you don't, now you don't have to travel out to Colorado and find some random public land to hunt. Now you can hunt kind of in your own backyard, which I think is awesome. Sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead and finish your spot. Mine's just about the tags. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say like, yeah, what you were saying, Austin whitetails kind of just, roll with it so i'm not too worried about whitetail numbers when they turn in terms of them competing with elk they just kind of they're the elk eat they just kind of say oh okay i'll just go eat something else yeah yeah exactly what if we get hybrid elk deer (laughs) (laughs) well do elk like the the edge like the ecotones like the whitetails do you know you got a forest and a prairie that's where you're going to find your your deer now are elk do they have a similar nature to that or are they kind of because I, you know, I mean, you know, you see them in like the high country and stuff in Montana. They're all over the place and migrating and shit. So I mean, I feel like, like you were saying, Austin, that niche that they're operating in is is a bit different than these deer. So um, they might the populations might not uh, conflict as much um, when they're coming in these southern states. You know, I, I'll be honest with you. I'm not well versed enough in in elk uh, behavior <laughs> to know that because there is none in Chicago, as far as I know, ex- except for fenced in at elk, yeah. in Elk Grove Village. Yeah, uh, right. But, but uh, Gobert's farm and shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's uh, that's about the extent of my elk knowledge. I know that they are big and they eat grass <laughs> and they taste delicious yes that's about the extent of my my elk uh uh elk uh knowledge so yeah i, I can't i'll be honest i can't accurately uh talk to that point zach you uh yeah i'm not too too good in elk but i know that uh i mean like they can they can handle quite a bit of differences like um you know they're in Farmers in more flatter places have them in ag fields, or they can live in the mountains, or the you know the, the yeah. prairies. And I feel like a lot of migratory know. species are very well acclimated to different you know living conditions and stuff like that. And that's what reminds me when I think of an elk. You know, yeah, they just kind so, of roll with it, right? Yeah, they, and they just go with it. And so, Zach, my next question for you, you know, we're talking about the introduction of this species into Missouri and population starting to grow and it does i'm looking here it says they're trying to you know looking out to to have the population right now it's about 200 they're trying to get in a couple years or maybe not just a year just try to double that population now you said they're giving out around 10 tags what 
how difficult would it be for a, a Missouri native or a resident to qualify for an elk tag? Um, I'm not too familiar in that field, but I mean, I know when it comes to Wisconsin bear hunting, you know, you've got to be a seasoned hunter for them to even even look at your application or you're just going to get thrown out with the rest of them. Yeah. Um, I, I'm starting to try and dip my toe in like that whole preference points and lottery system for out West hunting. Mm-hmm. And since the season hasn't been a thing in Missouri yet, I think the first couple of seasons will just be a straight lottery. So okay. throw your name in the hat. But I feel like if they are, even after the first year, if they want to start doing a, like a bonus point system, mm-hmm. so basically if you apply just like bear hunting, you can buy a preference point, which is a preference point system. Or if you do a bonus point system, you apply. If you don't get drawn, you get a bonus point. So then next year okay. you apply and then you get to use your last year's bonus point and this year's application. You don't get it. You get another bonus point. And so the odds are greater for you in the next, in the next year's drawing. Right. Like the yeah. that one that one section of bears in Wisconsin, it's like 10 bonus points. So mm-hmm. there's an average draw. So you're going to be applying for 10 years worth of points before you can start, you know, really planning out your hunt well and wow. and, and cody i could uh, i could tell you just with the wisconsin tags what they did and it was and it, i feel like this is a very very similar model to wisconsin with their they just reintroduced elk as well and they only allowed i think eight tags in wisconsin mm-hmm. but just, it was 10 and six went to the to, indian tribes yeah so the so yeah so the the native uh wisconsinites or you know the the tribes of wisconsin they got x number of tags and they could use those as they saw fit and they basically disseminated those however they wanted to um but the other ones and i think that what'd you say there was 10 and i think the public got four yeah the public got four and then six went to what is it elk elks unlimited or one of the the big elk rocky mountain elk foundation yeah rocky mountain elk foundation which they i think um did a like fundraiser for that as well so you could buy the tags but it was just Mm -hmm. like to the highest bidder and then also i want to say that they did like random drawings for those with uh uh yeah with the elk foundation so it is your your odds are about as good as winning a lottery legitimately (laughs) legitimately and i mean that legitimately it's literally a lottery lottery. yeah that uh that brings me up to one more little uh, pro tip is at the end of the month of October, it's the last couple days to get your preference points for Wyoming. So I just bought my elk point, and if anybody wants to get your elk or pronghorn or uh, mule deer points, you got till the end of the month in Wyoming. Nice, yeah. So good, good little tip. Well, I, I think that I think we covered uh, Missouri elk pretty, pretty, uh, pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> That's about it. Maybe not well. Yeah, not well. Not but well, we but extensively. <laughs> 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 but uh, this one, and Zach, you and I talked about this one yesterday a little bit, and I, I thought this one was. Uh, I think the title uh, is a little, um, a, a, a little over the top, but it is accurate. <laughs> Uh, so this is an article also from Outdoor News. This is from August. Um, a Michigan angler was over the panfish limit. And um, I think that's, a, that's probably just, more common. Just than by a think. little bit. Just by a little bit. Only by <laughs> 1,400 panfish. 
<laughs> so, um, my question is, you forgot to count a couple. Yeah, I, you know, this is a <laughs> My question is, is how the hell do you catch fourteen hundred panfish? <laughs> that's my, <laughs> that's my first question. Give us your spot. Give us your spot, sir. Yeah, what's the secret? What are, what's the secret sauce to that? Right. <laughs> But but yeah, so basically the uh, the gist of this story is a uh, a Michigan gentleman. Um, what was this? Uh, Gladwin, Gladwin, sixty-seven year old Gladwin, sixty-seven year old man hauled in fourteen hundred panfish. <laughs> yeah, and and the worst thing about it is, I mean, the dude, in the words of DJ Khaled, "You played yourself, homie." So he went out. <laughs> He went out. Not only did he, so he got he got checked by the DNR. He said the DNR said that there was a report of someone, uh, you know, going over the limit of fish. They went out the first time. They check his boat, and he says, "Oh, I'm under the limit." And he had 13 panfish or some odd under, which is under the 25 man limit. Comes back. That was the first thing he said when the DNR approached him. Yes. <laughs> Hi. How's it going? It's, I'm not over my limit. <laughs> yes, and that is quoted multiple times that he did say, "I'm not over my limit." Um, so he went out, they checked him, he said, okay, well, then they checked again, his boat was still back, and then he came back again, they checked him again, and he went, I'm not over my limit. So he got pinched the same time in one day. For those that don't know, your limit is a daily limit. Just because you go back to the dock does not mean that your limit restarts every time you touch the dock. Um, so, Double dipping, they call that. <laughs> And so, yeah, and then, uh, so we went back and they're like, okay, this guy is clearly poaching. We want to check your house. And he goes, okay, you could go ahead and check my house. Who in the right mind, first off, would say that? And then... Some cocky son of a gun. Yes, and not only would you allow to someone that's delusional enough to also be holding 1,400 other fish in your freezer. (laughs) (laughs) So, Zach, can you, and you explain this to me, can you kind of explain how the daily limits work in most states? Uh, yeah, so basically you have your daily limit, which for most states, for panfish, it's 25. But then once you read your regulations, it also has a possession limit next to that. And for most of the states I've lived in, your possession limit is three times your daily bag limit. So if you catch 25 fish three days in a row, you cannot keep another fish until you start getting rid of those that you already have possession of. So that means if you catch 25 fish and you eat 25 fish in a day, you can go out the next day, the next day, the next day, and do that all over again. But you just cannot have more than three times your daily limit in your possession. Yeah. And, and Same I, thing with fish, ducks, uh, anything where you can take multiple things in a day out and, you know, count them. Yeah, and and I think, and I don't know, Cody, you're uh, you're a fisherman. I know you're a pan fisherman as well. Uh, I mean, I think that a three three times your daily bag li- or your daily limit, or three times your daily limit, it is. I think that's a fair amount for your possession limit. I don't think you oh. really. Nobody really needs more than seventy five fish. I mean, you figure two fillets per fish. You know, that's uh, you know one hundred and fifty fillets. You get. You get maybe four, six fillets. That's a meal for you. Yeah. You know, like if you have 70, 75 fish, like you're going to be eating good for a while. Like yeah, that, I, could even, that could feed a church. I, yeah, mean. I, don't, I don't understand 
uh, the point of having all these fish in there if you're just going to kind of like look at them in your freezer and be like, yep, I'm a badass. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, it's, it's wild. Yeah, I, and the other thing is, is, you know, even though this guy and we, we, we like to give a, um, you know, the giant, uh, the turd of the week as well. Uh, I think <laughs> this gentleman gets it for this week. Um, in his defense, though, that dude's got to have mad carpal tunnel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude. That I, dude... I, like you said, I want to know what he's using. I want to find out his spot. I want to talk to the, the wardens about, you know, this man because, you know, maybe we'll plan another trip up to Wisconsin or uh, Michigan and uh, we'll be eating good for a week. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, this guy, 1,400 fish. I mean, there is some good that did come. <laughs> it's ridiculous, but uh, there, there, is, uh, this, uh, there is some good from this. Um, is They are donating all of this back to uh, the local. Fo- uh, they're going to donate all of these fish to a local food bank or church. So at least some, yeah, some good, good came of this. But um, yeah, so. Don't do well, that. You know what? The, the wardens are good at they're good, they're good at doing that. That that's a common thing that you see from from these game wardens is taking poached harvest uh, animals and stuff and doing stuff like that. So so that's always great to hear from in the news. Yeah, no, absolutely. <clears throat> but yeah, this guy's a real turd. And uh, <laughs> keep an eye on your on your daily limits. Know your regulations and. Uh, when you run into a game warden, another word of the wise, say, hey, how you doing, sir? <laughs> Don't say, I'm not over my limit. <laughs> Don't be a jag off. Yeah, yeah, more or less. Yeah. That's rule one, no matter what else. That's rule number one. <laughs> Don't yell at the word, I'm not poaching. That's not, not the first uh, encounter that, uh, that, that you want to have. Um, was there any other topics you guys wanted to touch on uh, before we uh, we get into the, the meat and potatoes of this uh, you know this episode? No, Peter Peter, let's get at her. Yeah, right. Let's get at her. I think I'm good to go. All right, so um, Cody, we wanted to talk to you about uh, you know some aquatic invasives, and uh, if you could kind of just touch on uh, you know what you do, your job title what it is exactly you're doing uh, in the field of uh, aquatics. All right. So, yeah, uh, I work for a company called McLeod Aquatics in the Chicagoland area. And uh, basically, my company is uh, we go out. um, If you live on a pond, a lake, uh, even if you have a river system flowing through your backyard, uh, we'll come out and we'll we'll take take a look at the water uh, and we'll see what's going on. A lot of our customers have uh, water that's not healthy with imbalanced nutrients, uh, invasive species growth, and um, all that affects, you know, how they live their lives and, and enjoy their, their water. So our job is to kind of come in there, uh, spruce it up a little bit, and, uh, you know, just help these people get back to enjoying, you know, what they're paying for. And uh, whether it's fishing, whether it's just looking at a nice, nice body of water at night or uh, anything like that. So so we kind of uh, all around, we do take take care of the water for the most part. OK, uh, in these ponds. And so we already got questions. <laughs> yeah, that entail, that sentence entails a whole lot. 
you know, of how the water's being managed or, or taken care of. Yeah, per se. yeah, for sure. And um, one question I have off the bat, just kind of the general background with a company like yours, obviously you're with a private company and, mm-hmm. I, and I kind of already know the answer to this because uh, strangely you were uh, worked closely with the, with the, a uh, organization I used to work with, but yep. do you do, uh, are you uh, typically private contracts or are you working uh, under government contracts? Uh, it's mostly private contracts. You know, if you want to sit here and talk, we can talk politics, but the government thinks, you know, these environmental uh, problems aren't as big of a deal as, you know, paving new roads. So these are a lot of, uh, uh, property managers, homeowners associations, um, pretty much if you've got the money to take care of your water, you know, you're going to hire us, but you know, a person like you or me that owns a property of land that has a, a farm pond in our backyard, you know, you're not going to be calling us. It's a pe- it's the people that that uh, pull their money together in the neighborhood, kind of fuck, try to get this taken care of, this functioning body of water. No, no, absolutely. Um, Zach, I, I know you said you had some questions. You want to chime in here? Yeah, so, uh, Cody, I know you're doing all this type of stuff for uh, visual aspects. Mm-hmm. I got two questions. Uh, so number one, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but I'm just jumping the gun here. Um, are you guys doing all these different uh, aesthetics with, uh, you know, fish in mind and the, you know, water body in mind for under the water health? And then what? what kind of stuff do you see in rivers? Cause I know like ponds scum over and stuff, but what kind of invasive aquatics do you find in rivers? Well, so the big problem when you're dealing, when you're privately contracted out to uh, let's say most of our customers have acquired a bit more wealth than uh, you know, the common blue collar worker of DuPage County and, and all that good stuff. So these people, you know, some people are really interested and they really care about the health, the ecosystem, uh, the balance of nutrients in their water so that they can grow big fish. They can have, a, you know, uh, plants in your pond, but they're, everything's balanced. So you're not getting a, heaps of algae. You're not getting heaps of submerged plants. So in uh, our company, a lot of the technicians and the specialists that are hired like us, we all come from biology backgrounds. So we always have uh, the benefit or of, uh, the ecosystem in mind, but, you know, uh, uh, our managers or, you know, the customers also have a say in how things are going. So we like to come out there. If you have invasives, if you have, uh, algae problems, there's a bigger problem to that pond than just having algae. Why is this being caused? Uh, what can we do about it? So the, the most healthy, uh, the best thing you can do for a pond to make it healthy is have a balance of uh, aquatic invertebrates, fish, a balance of uh, aquatic plants. And that all comes from nutrients and sediment and water quality. And once all of that's kind of in order, then you're going to have a healthy pond. And you know what? You're going to go into a little 0.25 acre uh, farm pond and you're going to pull out a six pound, seven pound bass out of there. It's just because everything's lined up. Well, and uh, let me, let me ask you this. So for, for a, 
and I'm assuming you talk to the customers face to face quite a bit or the property managers Mm -hmm. is what are some of the things that you tell them to make them, you know, for, if you go to somebody that maybe doesn't care as much about Mm -hmm. the actual ecosystem, but just says, make my pond look pretty. How do you get Mm -hmm. these customers to actually care about the ecosystem? What are some of the things that you say? Mm -hmm. Well, the best thing about my job is actually getting to talk to these people, these stubborn people and, and educate them. And it all comes down to communication and education. Okay. Hey, I, uh, this pond's been growing these plants over here and it's got algae over here. It looks like crap. I want it gone. Say, okay, sir, if you want a swimming pool, you can just buy a whole bunch of chlorine from the pool store and dump it in here. And, and everything in this pond will die. It's going to smell bad and look like crap for six months. But after that, there's going to be nothing live left in this pond, you know? So um, one of our big stopping points is bringing up the Illinois DNR. Um, a lot of what entails in our job is uh, chemical applications such as herbicides, algicides, to take care of these invasive species and to knock down that surface algae that really is kind of just grows prolifically in these eutrophic ponds. So the, we have to get our license to be able to even apply anything to these ponds. And our license, the test is given by uh, the Illinois uh, Department of Agriculture. And the study books are, that we get to, for this test are given to us by the Illinois uh, Department of Natural Resources. So one of my favorite things is being able to bring up the Illinois DNR to these people and say, Hey, you're, I'm not, you're not talking to me. I'm talking as the DNR through, you know, you're talking to the DNR through me, like everything I'm telling you um, about having, you want 10% plants. If you have one to 10% of the surface covered in algae, that's healthy. If you're seeing nothing but little small fish in your pond, there's something wrong with it. Um, And the big problem is, is just kind of getting everybody on board with it's okay to have plant growth on your pond. And, and, and that's just kind of the daily struggle that we go through. But, you know, you're also talking to rich white old men who would rather be smoking a cigar and drinking a glass of cognac down at the VFW, you know, something like that. So, uh, so you're, so, uh, so what you're kind of touching on and and I think it's kind of interesting is, um, you know, in some of my, my graduate classes, we've been talking about, you know, some different methods of getting people to get on board with that. And one Mm -hmm. of the things that we do talk about quite a bit is, um, kind of hitting them with the facts and seeming, uh, and not, not necessarily seeming, but actually knowing, knowing your stuff is really what it is. Mm-hmm. And and do you think uh, it sounds like you're using that a lot? It's just hitting them with the plain facts. Like, this is not my opinion. These are the facts, and this is what I'm presenting yeah. to you. And you're trying to present those facts to someone who wants their pond to look like they live in northern Wisconsin, but they really live right off of Highway 355 <laughs> in, in the Chicagoland area. It's like, 
they're like, well, why is this growing? Why is that growing? Why are, why don't I have walleye in my pond that's only eight feet deep? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it's a, you got to take back, take a step back, and and help them realize where they are in the world and how the ecosystem works in the different parts of the country that we live in. And and do you use more of a? Uh, uh, and it sounds like there's a little bit of two things going on here, which I I, I think, and as a ranger, I had to do this a lot is. Um, kind of uh go towards the emotional aspect of it like hey here's why you know this is good because this will make you feel good that you did a good thing for the environment or are you doing or are you just not touching on that like okay here's what we're doing that's it no i i think it's a a mix of both because what i am explaining to them it is good for the environment and a lot of them just don't really give a damn (laughs) Yes. And 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 that's that's the problem, especially you've been working in the DuPage Forest Parks, you know, uh, down here, you you know, the type of people that you're talking to and, you know, they're not going to understand the fact that this three foot ring of Ameri- floating American pond weed around your pond is what's preventing a 50 percent algae bloom on a one acre pond. That these plants that you have that are only taking up maybe 5% of the surface area of your pond are preventing 50% of smelly, yellow, nasty green scum from happening. And, and they, it's just trying to get it through their heads that, hey, you know, uh, nature isn't perfect and we don't have a reset button for your pond. We, uh, we kind of are, are, at the mercy of mother nature here. So, and you know, that's just the service industry that we're in. Uh, Zach. Uh, yeah. Did, did you have any points uh, to make? Uh, no, not yet. I just want to hear some more about all this, uh, you know, just what the ins and outs of making a pond more healthy, but back to my mm-hmm. previous question, what's that bad stuff you find in rivers? Uh, so the, like the bad stuff you find in rivers are you're looking at your, uh, your invasive species, uh, such as Eurasian water milfoil. Um, that's probably the biggest pain in the butt or the biggest problem for freshwater systems in this area. And, um, a river that has a Eurasian water milfoil problem can get choked up in a matter of say three years. And that's where you're having a hundred percent plant growth throughout the bottom of the pond. And when these plants reach the surface, they don't stop growing. They start growing across the surface of the pond and that's going to impede, uh, water flow discharge. Um, and there's going to be no life that can, can survive in these areas anymore. Um, and the other problem for wetlands and rivers and the floodplains that are in rivers are uh, emergent plants such as uh, you know, like your Phragmites, uh, your Arrowhead. They just suck up so much water that's moving through the system that they tend to uh, shrink the width of the river or uh, can, can actually kind of start drying it out, hmm. especially sure. in times of drought. Huh. Yeah. Huh. And um, so you kind of touch on some different uh, species already. 
what are your and I mean I, I I've been looking over and this is uh, one thing near and dear to my heart but what are some of your your top uh, you know invasive species that you're running into what are the typical aquatic invasive species that you're running into well so out here um, if you're talking freshwater systems uh, categories of plants are are uh, technically uh, we put them in four categories so you have your submerged weeds your floating pond weeds you have your emergent weeds like your cattails and your phragmites that stick out of the water and your free floating like uh, your duckweed. Uh, and to just touch back what I said before, the biggest problem in our our freshwater ecosystems uh, that aren't, aren't terribly big in, is the Eurasian water milfoil. Now, there is a native species called northern water milfoil, um, but the Eurasian species is what we run into the most. It's not terrible to manage it's doable but the sheer volume and the aggressiveness of this plant um, can take over a pond in in a season or two and and that's just gonna it's gonna wipe out your fish your mackerel invertebrates uh no native species is going to be able to thrive there and you kind of just end up having a a cesspool uh, that it looks like you could almost walk over Jesus. Yeah, because that, that stuff grows even from, like, cut segments, doesn't it? Yeah, so the problem with invasive species is what makes them so good at acclimating and adapting to different environments is, like, uh, the Eurasian water milfoil curly leaf pondweed is another very prevalent species in the area. Uh, you go around, say I take my boat around a, a pond and it's full of this stuff, and I'm I'm – hitting the prop full throttle if i chop up all all that uh plant those fragments are going to float to different parts of the lake those are going to settle and those fragments um they can just settle into the sediment and then uh you know next season you're going to see plants there jeez yeah yeah the seed beds can just can spread for miles and this fragmentation that these uh, invasive species have just another benefit and why what makes them so aggressive huh and so, yeah, so oh god uh, well i was just gonna say so like i worked on the wildlife side of water manipulation i worked on wetlands a lot the mm-hmm. past couple of years like duck management stuff like that it's really nice because you know you get something that doesn't it's not quite right or you get some invasives popping up or you want to you know get rid of something you can draw down, dry it out, mm-hmm. put water back over, and it comes back. So I was just wondering what the whole process is like if somebody wants to say, like, help me out. What, like, walk us through the process if somebody says, you know, this pond is completely scummed over or I have milfoil on the whole mm-hmm. thing. What, what are you doing? Well, so the problem with um, these invasive plant species is they act similar to, you know, your native plant species. When they bloom, they're going to produce flowers and seeds. Well, as soon as they produce those flowers and seeds, they're dropping them back into the sediment. And so now you've created a seed bank. And what we see in invasives, whether what what you see in in other uh, very long, old evolutionary plants and even animals is... You, the seeds are dropped into the bank. They go beneath the sediment. You dry that, that body of water out, put water back in there, 
and those seeds are still viable. When the conditions become right again, they're going to sprout up. So there's no real good way to manage them. Like you said, you want to take them out uh, mechanically. Well, I just said we're fragmenting them, so we're breaking them up. We're creating more of a problem by just trying to get the biomass out. So right. a lot of a lot of the uh, the companies and the vendors that we use um, is the only solid pro- uh, solution that we've seen is chemical treatments, uh, herbicides that specifically target one plant species. Um, there's they're coming out with stuff year after year. We go to symposiums and and we listen to these guys talk about new products. And, and the biggest thing you want to do in managing these plants is attacking them before they can get their seeds uh, to sprout. When the flowers open up, the seeds are produced. Um, even if you got a full uh, plant that's been growing, it's about five feet long because it's grown in deep water like these invasives can do. And you kill that plant, it's going to look great for the rest of the year. But you know what? It's dropping those seeds back down into the sediment. And next year, you're going to have the same problem. So what we're really trying to do is attack these plants before they can produce seeds. And, and with that being said, is uh, and I know you said they're pretty um, targeted chemicals that you're using. I mean, uh, th- these are safe. I mean, as safe as they could be for the, mm-hmm. the other uh, species within the, the system, correct? Yeah. So all of the products that are used in Illinois are EPA regulated and as well as regulated by uh, the Illinois agricultural um, system. So what is good, which is also bad about invasive species, is because they grow so fast, they're uptaking a lot more nutrients from the water a lot faster than the native species are. So you can put a whole lot less product into the body of water and that's going to affect the invasives, but it's not going to affect the natives because they haven't been able to uptake into their root system as much of the product as the invasives who are growing at exponential rates, if that makes sense. No, no, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. interesting. And uh, with those, and, and here's a question I have because I've posed this for the uh, the, the uh, Asian carp, which is a totally different topic. But I pose this: is there is there a way to just completely nuke a pond? Uh, yeah. Like I said, you know, all of these products that we're using for chemical treatments, which there are other options, and I mean, we could talk about that later in the podcast if you guys so uh, please to, but. The, the chemicals that are being put into a pond that are regulated by the EPA are regulated at a specific rate. You are not to go over. Yeah, it's part. Um, it's your parts per part, million. Parts per million yep. or your parts per billion. So if you wanted to completely nuke a whole pond, you take your label rate calculator and your label on your chemical you throw it away and you add four times the amount you know hopefully you just trip and the gallon falls into the pot hopefully no one ever does that because it's very illegal but if you were to want to nuke a pond 
you just take the products that are being used by your applicators or your operators and you go higher than the label rate. And that's, that's, I mean, you would have a terribly smelling bond after that. And I don't know how your morals would be after seeing about 100, 200 dead fish in a half an acre pond. But <laughs> yeah. that's how you would nuke it if you would if you wanted to. Huh. So then what's like, what's a turnover then? If you nuke a pond, how much or how long so you can get fish and veg back in there? Oh, the veg will come back because, like I said before, those seed banks are there, right? So... Uh, a lot of products that are produced on the market do not have a long half-life in the water. Um, Diquat is uh, one of the main herbicides that are used in aquatic uh, plant management. And it has a half-life of three to four days. Whenever, okay. this, whenever this product is in the water column, it can be uptaken by plants. But once it comes in contact to sediment... It binds to the sediment and sinks back down into the water, and it cannot be viable, viably used or uptaken at all. It's just bound to the sediment, and it's part becomes part of the system. So a lot of these uh, these products you see go away after the initial use, and I mean your fish may not come back until you stock more. But those plants have seed beds down there, and when there's no plants in there. Uh, there's an availability of phosphorus and those, and whatever comes first, if you have invasives, they're probably going to use that phosphorus to start sprouting up like, uh, like nobody's business. Yeah. So, so what I'm, more so what I meant with fish was you can put them in there after that half-life mm-hmm. is up. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that'll happen um, every now and then uh, you see uh, we get a lot of rainstorms in this area and especially in the springtime, especially in 2019. Well, these, these are all stormwater ponds in this residential areas. So you're getting water from streets and people's yards and everything that's flushing in. Well, you know, occasionally that picks up bacterias and viruses. Well, once that bacteria and virus flushes into the pond, it could kill your whole system of fish. And uh, if there's few that survive, you know, you it, Fish are going to take years and years and years to build back up that population, uh, but plants are are more likely to seek regrowth in in about a year or even a season, a growing season. You could see them come back. Well, and, well. and uh, so you you touched on the obviously the the chemical aspect and the pros and cons of that. Do you guys mm-hmm. do anything as far as uh, adjusting the uh, the biome in in a given body of water? Like, will you guys add certain macro or micro invertebrates will you plant plants will you add fish mm-hmm. or are you guys just sticking to uh, are you more the propagation of natives or propagation of good uh species or are you guys more towards the end mm-hmm. of uh destroying the bad species um well i'm glad you asked that it's a it's a good mix of the both of them uh, so, you know, we're not a company that just goes out there and sprays chemicals on ponds and gives you the thumbs up and be like, all right, I'll see you in a little bit. I hope this works. Uh, we work with companies that produce um, aerobic bacteria. And how, you guys know every pond's got bacteria in it. And every time something dies, uh, the bacteria need to decompose it 
bring it down to the bottom of the sediment, and then it becomes part of that, that bottom layer there. Well, all the bacteria, or most of the bacteria, and especially eutrophic ponds, which, you know, they're high nutrients, they're old, they're shallow and hot, all of that bacteria that's doing the decomposing is anaerobic bacteria. So when it's very hot out, you're getting a lot of carbon dioxide um, pushed into the system from these bacteria. Well, we're working with companies that are trying to create cultures of aerobic bacteria in your pond bodies of water. So uh, we have products that we, tr- we apply um, twice a month um, to get a population of bacteria that's going to outcompete the anaerobic bacteria as well as provide oxygen for your pond while things are being decomposed in the body. Huh. Wow. Yeah. That's really, yeah. That's uh, super that's, interesting. Jeez. You, yeah. My mind is in a bottle right now. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, you, you know, Gabe and uh, Gabe's a big, big promoter of this product. And he's, he's almost all of his accounts have this now. And you just see a world of difference when there's more oxygen being added to your pond. Um, you're going to see less growth because the plants absorb the CO2 and they produce the oxygen. Well, if there's not a mu- as much CO2 in the body of water, you're going to see less plant growth. But your fish will still be thriving because now you have a more oxygen-rich exactly. uh, environment. Yeah, that's and, super and interesting. So, yeah, wow. Yeah, and, and that's what we're trying to promote outside of you know the chemical practice is, is uh, microbes, and uh, especially aeration systems to provide oxygen to the water. And it's pretty much just keeping it clean. You know, if you think about something that uh, like a factory that's producing all the CO2 in the air, you know, you think of that as, as dirty and unlivable and smog. But, you know, when you see a beautiful, uh, you know, prairie of plants or a forest of trees, you know, that's that's more that's a lot more beneficial to the system that you're living in um and it's a lot healthier and it makes everything run smoother wow that is i i am i am mind bottled that is awesome (laughs) that that is some really interesting Uh, stuff yeah Yeah, no i guess i never really thought yeah you could use wow huh huh yeah it's just trying to to shift the system of microbes from one species or one population of uh you know, unbeneficial microbes to, to one that's going to be doing nothing but uh, providing oxygen and, and still doing the same job. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, my other question is, and I know you're, you're, you're obviously supported by um, I, your, your business is supported by having invasives. What are some recommendations that you could give to the general public? And that may not be someone that's on a residential pond, but obviously you have a strong mm-hmm. background in this is preventing invasives mm-hmm. just in general. What are some good uh, practices and some uh, techniques that people could use to prevent invasives, whether that be in their, in their ponds, at, you know, if mm-hmm. they live in a subdivision or if that's, you know, in a larger body of water. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a few things that we could talk about in invasive and just overall plant production in the pond uh, to help keep that low. One is if you're an outdoorsman and 
You like being on the water. I go kayaking all the time. You know, we've gone before. And uh, my business, we have boats, which we tow from pond to pond, and we're dropping them in here and there. It's wash off your boat, clean off your gear. That would be the biggest thing is, is to clean off, off your gear when you're done using it. You know, everyone talk about zebra mussels getting into ponds. It's just one example. And the other, the other thing I want to touch on is just pr- starting to practice uh, healthy living conditions, such as don't fertilize your grass every two weeks. You know, your grass is going to be green, but when that fertilizer gets into your pond, you're going to start activating. You're going to send these, uh, these seeds, these germination cues. And once the cues are set off, once the, the system is right and the environment's right, they're just going to start sprouting left and right. So there are also other options. I mean, reasons that invasives get into ponds, such as waterfowl and stuff like that. You really can't do anything about it. But if you're in a residential system, it's kind of a shame because uh, water's flowing in and water's flowing out. And whatever else is in that water at the same time, you don't really know. So it might not be your fault that you have invasive curly leaf or Eurasian water milfoil in your pond. But because all of these uh, residential ponds are connected by a sewer system, you're going to get this input of uh, of certain species and seeds and stuff that you might not want there. Yeah, And it's just kind of like uh, nature of the beast where you decide to uh, set up shop and call your home. You kind of just have to deal with uh, the consequences of uh, living in a, a suburban subdivision, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. And uh, an- another question, so, and one thing with the aquatic invasives is something that, um, and it, it's such a hard thing, is to get support behind the aquatic invasives. And one thing that I think people don't realize is, you know, you hear all this stuff about Eurasian milfoil, and that's a big mm-hmm. one, obviously, in the Midwest, is you hear all this stuff, oh, you know, clean your boats, clean your bilge, clean, you know, bleach mm-hmm. your boat, leave it out in the sun, your nets, your lines, all this stuff. Can you just touch on, to make this relatable to the common man, the huge ram, and you've already touched on this already, but the huge ramifications that, Eurasian milfoil and these invasives has on fisheries like to me to me it's such an easily connected thing but I think people don't understand is you have Eurasian milfoil it's like people think oh okay whatever there's some weeds what they don't Mm -hmm. understand is like what that means is that now you're not going to be catching fish yep and you know it's a shame uh going back to the smaller accounts that we're dealing with whether it's one acre to ten acres of water uh these plants can grow so thick that entire bodies of water are choked up. So you want native plant species because they only grow in certain environments, whether it's three feet of water or there's certain natives that can grow in 10 feet of water, but they only grow about four feet high. What the problem that we see is, is whether it's these, these invasive species are growing in three feet of water or 15 feet of water they're going to reach the surface. They're not going to stop growing. They're not going to uh, have a threshold. Um, once they reach the surface, if, I've seen curly leaf 15 feet down that has grown surface and continued to grow across the surface. And what that means is you're shading out sunlight. 
So no other plants can grow and that's going to affect your, your oxygen production. Or we're going to see uh, such thick patches of these throughout the entire pond that uh, no microorganisms or macroorganisms are going to be able to survive. Your fish don't have any hunting grounds. They don't have any space to move. And, and uh, when you have all this biomass in the pond, it's good for oxygen production, but it's also going to heat up the water. Yeah. So, so the survival of all of these organisms in your pond, um, when it's being completely dominated by one species, is just absolutely detrimental. Uh, you're you're going to lose your fit first. You're going to lose your uh, native species of plants. Then you're going to lose your macro invertebrates. Then you're going to lose your fish, and then the pond is literally going to start uh, drying up because every year. When you have 100% coverage of an invasive species uh, throughout your whole pond, well, in the fall time, those plants die. And what happens when they die? They sink to the bottom and they start decomposing. Well, that's just adding to the muck layer. So you want to talk about 20 years of that. You're talking about adding about uh, two feet of muck to the bottom of your pond. So you're reducing the depth of your pond. The pond is going to get hotter in the summertime. Um, it's going to continue growing thicker and thicker until it either uh, can't support itself anymore or it completely dries up. And that's just the process of eutrophication here. And these invasive species speed that process up uh, tenfold. Jeez Louise. That, yeah, it's nuts. It's nuts. I, I, I feel like people don't see this relation and it's so prevalent and it's so destructive. But mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think we're we're hitting on close to a little over an hour here, and I think that's probably a, a good spot to close out the main uh, the yeah. main thing here. Was there was there any other stuff that you wanted to touch on, or anything uh, anything you wanted to add? No, I think it's just uh, whether you're you're living uh, off the grid, whether you're living in the country, whether you're living in the residential suburbs, just uh, on the water, just kind of you know, respect and educate yourself on where you live and uh, what this body of water actually is instead of uh, just looking at it and say, hey, I want a swimming pool to look at every night, you know, uh, just kind of get yourself involved. And, uh, you know, that makes a world of difference in the environmental community. Awesome. Well, I think that was some great stuff. Uh, Zach, did you have anything you wanted to add? Um, well, just after hearing what you can do, <laughs> Cody, I just was curious, what would be like, if you had to design your own fishing pond, what would be like the size and what kind of vegetation would you like to see so that fish species could, you know, mm-hmm. do really well in that kind of environment? Like specific yeah. native plants and stuff like that. What, what are you looking for? Yeah, so I mean, we're talking Midwest here. So um, if I'm talking a trophy bass fishing pond, I'm going to want at least minimum 12 feet of depth uh anywhere from a half an acre to an acre for for just a personal pond in your backyard it's fine the body water size is fine um and you know what you're going to want to design that with shelves you're going to want like i will go back to it you want your native submerged weed species you want a balance of submerged weed species so these are the plants that are starting from the bottom and they're staying in that water column um, and the outside on the top of my pond, I'm going to want some uh, American pondweed. And that's a native floating pondweed species, only grows in about three feet of water. 
I'd like a few patches of that around my shoreline. Um, I would also like a few patches of algae. Algae makes great cover for uh, foraging fish and predatory species. It keeps uh, keeps the water cool in that area. Um, and as well as I would like a not a large patch, but a, a decent sized patch of cattails around my shoreline in and on the water. Uh, these cattails make for great habitat for uh, uh, frogs, foraging fish, macro invertebrates, which are all just contributing to the food web to just produce you uh, trophy sized bass. So I want some weed, some weed beds. I want some dark holes where nothing's growing and I want some uh, floating pond weed at the surface. Um, all those together uh, with the right amount of phosphorus flowing into your pond is going to produce you a, a nice sized bass for uh, for the Midwest. Take that to the bank. And you can take that to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's interesting too because it's just like uh, a prairie or whatever, you know, it's you could relate it to mowing your yard mm-hmm. and, you know, it might look nice just staring at it, but you know, those prairies are actually the healthiest, just like what you're saying. These, these vegetate, these vegetated ponds are actually more, a lot more healthy than mm-hmm. what you kept saying, like those swimming pools and stuff. So it's just, I think people need to break away from this mowing lawns and, you know, keeping everything tight and neat and just start getting more, uh, more vegetated and stuff. Yep, yeah. Yep. It's gotta be natural, you know, uh, just like the the sugar canes down in Florida and stuff, breaking up the waves from a hurricane. It's like every everything's here for kind of a purpose. You got vegetation around your pond. It starts raining. Uh, water's picking up all the phosphorus that you just laid down in your fertilizer uh, earlier that day. And, and those plants are going to use the phosphorus before the algae or the invasive species can inside the water. And uh, it's just kind of a buffering system um, at that point. So... The more diversity yeah. you have in an ecosystem, the healthier it is, or so says the DNR. So nice, and I'm gonna go nice. with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, well, I think that covered everything I wanted to get covered, and about ten thousand times more. Uh, <laughs> Zach, uh, I think uh, you good. Any any final thoughts? I'm good. That was awesome. Yeah, man. that was awesome. Hey. Cody, we really appreciate your insight on this, but we do have one more segment here uh, that we like to close out with. And Cody, I would love for you to stick around and, uh, you know, maybe give us some of your insight on this. Yeah, of course. Uh, For our last segment here, we got hot gear, cold beer. Zach, (laughs) what do you got for us? This week for hot gear, these Rage mechanical chisel tips have been putting the smackdown on deer. Let me tell you, they, I mean, it's just crazy the amount of cutting distance and these entrance holes are ginormous going right through the ribs, right out the backside. I never thought I'd be a mechanical guy for broadheads, but I am sold on these ones. Um, Another little side shout out for hot gear. My 1972 Oscar meat grinder (laughs) is pumping out deer. (laughs) So more miles that's than a your champ. truck right now. <laughs> yep. Yep. That thing has been a champ for me. Um I gotta keep shoveling coal into the back of it for it to run, but but yeah, that thing's been good. Um cold beer, I 
we went to Aldi recently. I don't know how many different states Aldi's are in, but if you've never been to one, you're missing out. Uh, they have this little campfire beer variety pack and just a bunch of good ones. They had like a s'more one and then a couple different stouts, a s'more stout, uh, a vanilla stout, a couple other ones. It was pretty dang good. Nice. Nice. That's all good. Um, well, for my, my hot gear, uh, I got two things. One, I got the hops boar snake, which, uh, I have not been a boar snake guy. I've been a, uh, you know, like the standard, like screw together 14 pieces, put on a little brush tip. Um, you know, it's like a, a, a erector set that you got to put together to clean out your shotgun. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, I, I, I caved, I was at, uh, I was at Walfart and I, I bought the, uh, bought the hops boar snake and God, does it make my life 10,000 times easier. Two swipes of that thing, that thing you could eat off of the inside of that boar. Um, so that's, that's... <laughs> do, you, do you put the, uh, the soaked cloth around your bristles then? No, it's got like a little bristle built into it. And then it like, it, 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 like it, it goes before it with like the cloth. And then there's a bristle like built into the middle of it. And then there's cloth behind it. So the whole thing you just put, I just put a little dabble do a bore cleaner at the front. And then it just two times, boop, boop. At first time it's clean. The second time I'm just doing because it's fun. It's, <laughs> it's excellent. I swear to God, things awesome. If you shake um, more than once, you're just playing with yourself, bud. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. Go. Uh, and then the, uh, the second thing is, which I already told Zach about this. And uh, I, Cody, you're going to get a good chuckle out of this. I was at the old Goodwill buying some Halloween costume attire. Oh, yeah. That's a hot tip. <laughs> this, is, this is a hot tip. Goodwill for anything. Um, but uh, I ran into a wetsuit there. Oh, yeah, bud. <laughs> for 15 bucks. A wetsuit. A <laughs> couple of holes in it. No. I, well, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't gone snorkeling with it yet. But, um... It's just a suit <laughs> at this point. <laughs> <laughs> but so it's a wetsuit dude i wore this as my base layer i wore a wetsuit as my base layer when i went out deer hunting it was 40 degrees i was sweating profusely Hell i yeah. love it i got full movement i feel like Catwoman. i'm just out here <laughs> and um, you know what you look great too <laughs> oh my god my glutes are popping let me tell you that very form-fitting <laughs> very form-fitting don't let your buds in the in the deer camp to you. You might they might take a <laughs> take a grab at you if you're wearing this bad boy. <laughs> but uh, especially during the second week. <laughs> yeah, you're that's anyone's guess at that point. Um, but yeah, I've I've invested fifteen dollars, and I think everyone else should do the same and get a wetsuit from Goodwill and wear it as your base layer because it's good to negative forty degrees cold water. So imagine that I'm 40 degrees above. It's amazing. <laughs> and then uh, for my cold beer, I'm going to go with the classic Wisconsinite beer uh, made by a fan favorite, New Glarus, and that is the Moon Man. And I th- is that seasonal, Zach? That's their IPA. Uh, I don't know what it is. Yeah, it's so. their – No, I think it's like a some kind of pale yeah. ale. It's not seasonal, but it's damn yeah, good. Yeah, it is a damn good beer, and I had that, and it was tasty. So uh, I had those. Cody, you got any hot gear, cold beer? Well, let's see. You know, my life's been pretty mundane right now with the hot gear facts, uh, living in Chicagoland. So I don't know if I have any for that. Um, I will uh, 
do a shout out to this brewery that I recently found in, um, I believe it's near Lansing, Indiana. It's called Windmill Brewing. Oh, and by the way, I'm I'm uh, I'm about to shout out this double IPA with. Uh, I also have a Bush Latte in my hand, so <laughs> don't get it confused. But Vector uh, <laughs> of the Gods. <laughs> This is a this is a it's a double IPA. It's called California Cheeseburger. And oh. let, me, let, me, let me tell you what, <laughs> it doesn't taste like a damn cheeseburger. <laughs> so uh, this is like it's kind of one of those little spots that uh, you know they're pretty big on Facebook. But I've been out to the brewery a couple times. They're right across the border of Illinois, Indiana, and there's not too much foot traffic in there. And man, they produce some really good beer. So this California cheeseburger. Uh, that's what I've been messing with. Uh, I got a couple cases in the fridge right now, but uh, nice. Got to uh, make room for the bushel of beer that uh, I'm planning on buying soon. At fifty six, go and get your bushel. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Cody, I do have one question for you. Um, with this California cheeseburger, um, do you think it would pair well with kangaroos that you shot? <laughs> <laughs> Man, I'll tell you what. Anything you anything you decide to put down your throat would pair well with a kangaroo. Because that shit is delicious. So, I, I was going to throw that in there at some point. I was well, you know what? We can we could save that for another segment, too. I could tell you all about my kangaroo spotlighting in Australia. And- yeah, no, we want to. Well, you know, I think this was an excellent, excellent podcast this week. And, Cody, I just want to uh, thank you so much. I know this was kind of late notice, uh, but I uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, no, you know what? You guys are a blast. I'm glad uh, glad I got to talk to you for the hour and uh, kind of just give give everybody some insight on what you can do in your, your local community and what, what's been going on in these, in these ponds. So I, I hope you guys have me back. I had a great time.